Thank you for joining us today for today's Thought Leadership Series. I'm Brandon Cooper, the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder, and today I'm honored to be joined by Glenn Trudell, a friend and former colleague at MBA America. Glenn Trudell is a consumer financial services, banking, and business attorney who counsels financial institutions, marketplace lenders, fintech entities, and other companies on both regulatory and transactional matters. Glenn has significant experience with the documentation and creation of marketplace lender platforms and structures in the acquisition and divestiture of consumer and business credit card and other loan portfolios. He also advises state and federal financial institutions and other entities on regulatory, operational, and vendor outsourcing matters, debt sales, and collection agreements, and other transactions, and assists clients in the structure and documentation of new credit products and on formation and licensing issues in Delaware. Before re-entering private practice, Glenn was a senior vice president and counsel with MBNA America Bank. During his 14 years with MBNA and since then, he has advised on a broad variety of general purpose and private label uh, credit card, unsecured lending, deposit, and other bank regulatory issues. Glenn has extensive experience in representing the bank and other card issuers and partners in the negotiation, structuring, creation, and administration of joint marketing, co-brand, affinity, miles, rewards programs, enhancement agreements, as well as account portfolio acquisitions and divestitures. He also advised on regulatory and operational matters related to the international expansion efforts of MBNA. In his business practice, Glenn counsels clients in the structure and creation of business entities and in connection with contractual matters and traditional corporate governance and other matters, including providing Delaware law options. So without further ado, thank you for joining us, Glenn, and any opening comments? Uh, well, my pleasure, Brandon. I appreciate the opportunity to have this chat. I appreciate it, too. I, I know you've had the opportunity to do this before, so you're a seasoned pro, and I'm glad to have you back. I always value your opinion on, on topics, not just limited to third-party risk management, but all, all areas of regulatory compliance and numerous other things. And, you know, since we talked last time, there have been a number of changes at, at the prudential regulators. And what do you think that means for us for the rest of this year from a regulatory compliance perspective? Well, Brandon, uh, you know, let me break it down a little bit and maybe uh, talk about some of the various regulators, you know, starting with uh, like the FDIC. I mean, Elena McWilliams, uh, you know, has been there about a year and she's been quoted as saying that, you know, that they are reviewing all FDIC guidance and she and she's also said that she wants to do better with the de novo bank process. And I expect those processes to continue. Uh, I think she wants to justify and validate why the FDIC does what it does and, and requires what it requires and so forth. Now, all of that said, I'm not sure that much is going to be changing immediately regarding the FDIC's posture with respect to vendor risk management uh, per se. Now, that said, of course, we should note that, you know, in April, uh, they issued a financial institution letter, um, FIL 19-2019, uh, that letter was issued to, as you know, to remind financial institutions about the need for certain contractual provisions and other requirements pertaining to technology service provider contracts. Now, you know, they were motivated, the FDIC was motivated in doing so by some re then recent routine examinations. And during that time, the FDIC had found that several uh, tech service provider contracts were inadequate under the existing guidance. And uh, the contract and they were inadequate in that they were missing or were inadequately addressing certain key terms like requiring business continuity plans, establishing recovery standards, you know, specifying institutions remedies if the provider missed a standard or requiring the service provider 
to respond to security incidents by, among other things, notifying the institution and even defining key terms in the contract re relevant to business continuity and or to incident response. And uh, the letter also highlighted that the depository institutions are required under Section 7 of the Bank Service Company Act uh, to report to their respective uh, federal uh, bank regulatory agencies those contracts with tech service providers that provide certain types of services to the bank, uh, which are enumerated in, in Section 3 of the Act, and in, in, in things like accounting and, and processing and check processing and that sort of thing. Um, and also includes uh, an FDIC-developed form, uh, which is an unofficial aid in complying with that notification requirement. Now, this is not was not a change in policy so much as a reminder, uh, but it, it, it indicates that you know the FDIC is still looking at this and still sees itself as you know front and center responsible for for advising uh, the the banks to which uh, they are primary regulator at least of um, you know they are watching and they are taking these exams seriously and uh, providing uh, this sort of um, ongoing on the spot guidance and, and I have no reason to expect that 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 sort of treatment isn't going to continue now on the OCC side you know with I, I'm not seeing any radical departures from prior guidance provided in this area over the rest of the year um, there's really I mean they as you know I mean the OCC's guidance is is real, probably the most um, fulsome guidance that's out there on issues of vendor risk management. Um, and so, again, I'm not seeing for the rest of the year any significant changes there. Now, the FDIC, FTC, rather, um, I think is going to continue to be a, 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 an aggressive regulator. Uh, as you know, all five of the commissioners are officially started just last year. Um, and so the direction the agency takes could change um, as they become more and more comfortable in their role, but uh, there's no evidence I'm aware of uh, for a major shift in the near term. Uh, you know, we're seeing efforts to rein in robocalls and other and, and telemarketing sales rule violations. They're active in debt collection, debt repair scams, you know, identity theft, that sort of thing. Uh, they're continuing to look at financial service consumer complaint hotspots. Privacy and data security, I think, are going to continue to be areas of focus for them on an ongoing basis. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm coming to these these conclusions based on you know a couple you know a couple of things. One being their own comments and testimony have reflected their desire to be a primary enforcer uh, of of information flow um, in privacy, data security, that sort of thing. And they've argued, uh, the press has reported how they're arguing for expanded powers of rulemaking and enforcement in the privacy and data security areas. And uh, I think as well that their, their primary cudgeon, the, um, the Section 5 of the FTC Act, uh, which as you know, prohibits unfair and deceptive acts and practices, I think is gonna continue to be a primary basis for bringing you know, these sorts of, and so you know, I think that they're gonna seek to continue to distinguish themselves as regulators in this area. Um, and then finally, just a bit on the CFPB, uh, with Kathy Craninger, uh, you know, she's been quoted as saying that they should be focused on preventing consumer harm rather than merely handing out fines, though bad actors will still be brought up on enforcement actions. And again, I think that theme's going to continue. Uh, I think they're going to be focusing more, and they are focusing more on prevention and education. We're seeing that with their renewed emphasis on rulemaking, uh, like the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, um, NPRM. Um, and as well, you know, they they recently had a symposium 
uh, where they were talking about the meaning of abusive. Uh, and there were a number of differing views that came up during that discussion as to its meaning relative to unfair and deceptive. Um, and they're also still very active on the supervision and enforcement side. I think we're seeing a shift to supervision as a corrective method versus public enforcement. Uh, that's been sort of reported in the press. Uh, enforcement activity has picked up under Craninger uh, more than the Mulvaney era, but not to the degree perhaps as under Richard Cordray. Um, and, you know, I think, again, you know, PAR letters and MRIAs are still being issued. So I think that's a continuing area as well for them. You know, it's interesting. I had the opportunity at the beginning of May to speak at the uh, FFIEC Large and Complex Supervisory Examination Conference. And, you know, a couple of messages that I tried to leave them with was, if you could do uh, financial institutions any favor right now, defining the abusive standard would be huge because this whole we know it when we see it approach to uh, uh, to, de to defining it just doesn't do us any good. It's hard to go in and advise your senior management team what you can and cannot do. Unlike a lot of the other regulations where you can point out chapter and verse, here's you know here's kind of that bright line that you can't cross. With the with the lack of clarity around the abusive standard, all you can really do is read the enforcement action as the tea leaves. So I'm glad to see that Kathy Craninger is stepping into that fray and, and saying, let's get this sorted out. And I am happy to see that, you know, FDCPA, I think, hasn't been changed much since it was passed in 1977. And so a lot of that's outdated. All the collection methods have changed dramatically since then. So to see it get updated would be, a you know, a real boon as well. From your perspective, how do you think the new fintechs are doing overall with third-party risk? And, and what are your thoughts on the OCC's uh, fintech charter now that it's kind of been baked into place for a while now. We, don't, we haven't seen large-scale adoption of it or people rushing to it like, like uh, you know, everybody kind of thought would happen because, you know, obviously the standard is pretty much to have it be just like creating a national bank charter pretty much. Right. Well, it is, it is in fact, creating a national bank charter, although presumably limited in scope and, and no access to deposit. But, you know, in terms of how fintechs are doing overall with third-party risk, I mean, I think it's difficult to make an overall, overall pronouncement on the industry as a whole that's going to be of particular value. I mean, some fintechs are always going to be better at identifying and controlling for these risks than and in assisting their financial institution partners in these efforts than others are going to be. I mean, I would say that the most successful or viable fintechs going forward are going to be the ones that will prioritize and really work specifically to get this right. And some have already done so, I suspect. Now, you know, these series of risks are certainly not going away, and they're going to continue to be a front and center concern in the eyes of the regulators, you know, as the interdependence of financial institutions with uh, providers of, you know, these specialized but key services in increases over time. And, and with respect to the charter, I'd say that I, I really, you know, I think that was a big stopping point on this has been the the litigations that the OCC's embroiled in with the NY with the New York DFS and the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. And I think as long as those litigations are are in place and until they're resolved, whether through, uh, you know, a decision with appeal or or, you know, by some other method. I doubt we're going to see an application for that charter that's going to come to the fore um, and, and it will be announced publicly. I mean, I think there have been. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion under the radar screen, but um, I think I, I, I just think it may not simply be worth the risk for the first applicant to draw all that opposition to their efforts uh, right. based on the larger issues. I, I would hate to be the first one, the first bank, the first one, uh, would be you know fintech chartered bank. Um, 
But you know, so but I think what what you may see is is a couple of other possibilities. One where they will uh, you'll get a, a fintech that will seek a full service national bank charter, but their business plan will be geared more to a fintech, uh, where it might be a less controversial way to the charter because they're not they're relying on the you know the long-standing uh, methodology by which a national bank is created, and there's nothing limited about their charter. Uh, of course, that'll involve them getting approval for deposit as well. But uh, you know that may be one route, given that the the OCC fintech charter is is got so many challenges. Uh, and then you know over time, you've got this multi-state licensing platform that they're trying to streamline uh, to to help with this burden of having 50 sheriffs. Uh, that may be, become another option. I think that still has a ways to go. Uh, but that would be as an alternative to going for uh, a national bank charter. And, uh, you know, I guess the other glimmer of hope here is that, you know, as, as noted, as I noted earlier, the FDIC has at least voiced some desire to be more efficient with their review of FDIC applications. Right. Uh, then that may, that may prove to be helpful as well. Certainly. So earlier this year, we conducted our annual State of the Third Party Risk Management Survey, and, and based on the responses, it looked like some of the key concerns that are out there from the, the financial institutions responding, at least, that fourth-party risk assessments and third-party cybersecurity assessments are really the next big hurdles that financial institutions are, are facing, you know, beyond the traditional due diligence and risk assessment process. Do you think those are the, the right areas they should be focusing on, and do you have any helpful t uh, tips from your perspective as sort of the outside legal counsel looking into financial institutions as to how to tackle those? Well, you know, I think the, in terms of the biggest third party risk struggles, you know, I think that's going to vary depending on the company. Um, you know, the, what you, the areas that you mentioned um, are, are certainly areas where uh, maybe less attention was paid in the past and maybe more attention is being paid now. Uh, you know, I think keeping a good vendor management program good is is a tough enough struggle. You know, you've got a good one in keeping it good. Uh, but those who don't have a workable framework in the first place may be finding it increasingly hard to ignore. You know, the emphasis on proper vendor risk management, as you well know, is is becoming, uh, you know, is heavier, more and more and heavier and heavier um, as inter interdependence between financial institutions and their, their service providers increases. Uh, you know, I expect that dealing with changes in the European privacy law and the onset of the California privacy law that's coming into force in uh, 2020 are big areas for concern, particularly for companies who find themselves under the umbrellas of one or both of those laws and regulations. Uh, further, I think it's understandable that having to rely to some degree on a vendor and monitoring their own vendors can be a challenge where a financial institution's vendor may not have the contractual powers to do so that the financial institution would would prefer or would want. Uh, the, these issues can be something that uh, that can perhaps can be identified in a financial institution's initial due diligence of a vendor, uh, and perhaps watched over as part of the FI's you know ongoing monitoring. Uh, to identify these gaps and issues, uh, you know, that may inhibit or prevent them from adequately monitoring, you know, their their vendors uh, that are important to the bank, uh, and doing identifying those gaps early on, and and also, 
you know, to enlist the, the vendor's aid and getting those better handles on such downstream providers in important areas. Super. Yeah, and and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, a lot, it all kind of comes back to the basics of, of third-party risk management, of identifying issues through the due diligence and risk assessment process and making sure that you're following up on any loose ends. And, and that will help you identify, you know, the fourth parties that, that you need to be taking a closer look at and the maturity of the institution's own processes and overseeing their third parties, I think, or downstream fourth parties, really does, you know, kind of help define how deep you need to dig as, as the original issuing financial institution. That's and then right. finally, I wanted to get your perspective, um, and, I, and I know we're coming up on time here, but what are some overall third-party risk management best practices that you would recommend from what you've seen over the years? Well, you know, I, I typically recommend that, that companies really look at the structure of their ongoing monitoring programs and how they work on paper and in practice. And that's an important distinction because there's frequently there's a sometimes wide divergence between the two. You know, is monitoring being done as required and is the company learning from and making changes based on what they're finding? Uh, you know, and not just to business going forward, but also to the scope and the kinds of monitoring and the areas of inquiry that they monitor going forward. You know, this concept of doing the monitoring and really seeking to learn and better your processes as well as take corrective action based on the results of that monitoring. You know, often regulatory trouble can and does arise from these sorts of failures, you know, where monitoring isn't done properly or it's ignored. Uh, we've talked about that in other, um, you know, in other podcasts and, and uh, presentations. And so, you know, and that, that trouble can certainly be expensive, uh, both in terms of, you know, loss of funds to damages and in terms of loss of reputation, which can be even more important for a financial institution. Absolutely. And, and it's funny because, to me, uh, ongoing monitoring is sort of always seems to be that weakest link. I mean, you've, you've signed the contract, you've done the due diligence, you've done the risk assessment. Now the honeymoon phase is over and you're off to the races, and all of a sudden people kind of forget their obligations around ongoing monitoring, and it becomes sort of that forgotten pillar, and you don't think about it until a problem uh, bubbles up, and then you look back and you go, oh, my gosh, we forgot to, you know, keep an eye on this. And, and uh, you're right, the, the collateral damage, not just in terms of potential fine or enforcement action, but also, you know, just in terms of reputation risk, it's just huge. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I agree, and we see it in the consent orders. Oh, absolutely. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate the time. Any, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Well, you know, I think that, you know, in, in companies looking at their risk management um, process or how they go about handling it, you know, if they feel they don't have adequate in-house resources to accomplish what they need to do in order to get on top of those issues, or maybe they realize that they just don't know what they don't know, uh, often the most cost-effective way of dealing with that is to bring in resources with experience in setting up these kinds of programs and advising on regulatory requirements that may be applicable. Um, that can be a very effective way of, of basically leapfrogging to a place where instead of, you know, playing catch-up, you're playing cutting edge. Absolutely, and, and that's exactly how we try to explain a lot of times to our clients. Is, you know, we can do as much or as little of third-party risk management as you need for us to do, and, you know, if we need to even reach out further to, to folks like yourself, you know, we have resources available to help us help you. Uh, so, you know, tell us how, how, how best to serve your needs and let us do third-party risk management the way that it's supposed to be done. Well, Glenn, I really appreciate the time, and to everybody uh, who's tuned in, I appreciate you joining as well, and I hope you'll join us again for future sessions. Thanks, everyone.